Hello and welcome to the Spooky Shelf Podcast. I am your host, Joe DiCaro. In this podcast, I invite my guests to curate their very own spooky shelf, comprising 13 titles they think is the best the horror genre has to offer. I'm having to speak a little bit quietly. It's very early in the morning and my wife is still asleep. So <laughs> Sorry about that. My guest today is James Swanton, who you'll know from Host, Dashcam and Frankenstein's Creature. James was a wonderful guest and, as I predicted, brought more films from the early 20th century than anyone else. Uh, this is a two-parter, so this is part one of the conversation that James and I had. Remember to subscribe to the Spooky Shelf podcast so you can keep up to date with more guests from the online horror community. Without further ado, let's go and put up a Spooky Shelf with James Swanton. James, how are you today? Hello, I'm very, very happy to be here. How are you, Joe? I'm all the better for speaking to you, James. Um, it, it's... That was the correct response. I don't need to storm off now. <laughs> absolutely well no i'm very pleased that you are going to stick around for for the the questions i've got to ask you to you know decipher which which dvds are going onto your shelf indeed but um just yeah. before we get into putting together your your very own spooky shelf james um i feel duty bound to ask you something that i've never ever asked anyone else before okay My so God. get ready right. for this um <laughs> You appeared in what, for my money, is possibly the best horror film of the last few years, Host. Stephen King has seen Host, and (laughs) he made mention of how much he enjoyed it. What does it feel like knowing that you have been seen by possibly, well, I mean, you know, the the best-selling author in the U.S., for a, a horror film that you, that you've been a part of, what does that feel like? I don't really know how to begin answering that question. Um, <laughs> I mean, it has to be pointed out that I'm only in host for about three or four seconds. I, but, I hope they're three or four impactful seconds. But, but, James, um, yeah, that's, that was what uh, I was going to uh, say. Uh, what are three or four seconds, though? Oh yes, yeah. It was it was insane when it was, um, you know, first hitting the big time, as it were. Because I've I've done incredibly testing things in my relatively short but gradually growing longer career as an actor today you know i've done these one person plays which take a hell of a lot out of you and learned reams and reams of complex text and very complicated physical things and then you find that three or four seconds of you pulling faces with your face painted blue in a (laughs) massively exported film is um it, it sort of eclipses everything else you've done not, not, not that I regard that as a bad thing at all, but it is nonetheless rather peculiar. It's very, very funny, um, really. So, so something like Stephen King, it's it still feels deeply, deeply unreal. Mm. Um, I, I, I would hope you wouldn't recognise me in person if we were ever to meet. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to do some explanation. Um, remember <laughs> those good? highly impactful few seconds of your life, Steve. <laughs> it was me. I really like that you've yeah. already you're you're casual enough with him to go. Oh, Steve, you know me, and Steve. We go way back, you know. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Could you tell me a little bit about what making host was like for you then? Because it was in obviously you know the height of lockdown. What did that conversation look like when you were first approached? Um, it was it was really just something to do to occupy myself. I'd had a lot of acting projects which had evaporated when the lockdown hit. Um, so, Host came about, 
in a fairly casual way. I didn't really know what I was getting involved in, but I think, to be fair, no one putting it together really knew what they were getting involved in. So, um, I just got an email out of the blue from Rob Savage, who, whose um, short film Salt I've been involved in, uh, I think, I think three years before that. And I believe I was one of the very first people to be contacted for it, and um, certainly the initial discussions were very, very open-ended. There were no set ideas to begin with as to what this character I was playing would be. I, I was just in a position where I was being contacted by Rob over a period of weeks, and every so often he'd be asking me to record a bit more footage. Um, so it has to be said, there's a lot of demon footage I created for Host, which does not appear in the film. Because, of course, it's such a tour de force of editing. Um, you know, everything had to slide very, very neatly into the grander design. So yeah, I worked I, on it, and it was a nice little project, and it was a, you know, a small amount of money, which I was grateful for at that point, where so many jobs had uh, vanished into oblivion. And then I, I didn't really think too much of it, and when it was released, um, it, it became this enormous thing. And and it must be said, I, I, I got a chance to see it a few days before it went on release on Shudder. Uh, I was sent a screener, and having filmed that footage of myself as the demon, I, di I didn't find it at all scary because it was like, oh, oh, oh that's <laughs> how they've used it. And I, I you know, I, I, I was very impressed with the film, but it, it, it certainly didn't make me jump in any way at all because I knew exactly what was coming. Well, the, yeah, um, I suppose that's that's a you know <laughs> occupational hazard of being the demon. Yeah, very difficult yeah, to be scared yeah, by the demon. So. <laughs> yes, well, harder, harder at any rate. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I saw it was quality work, but I had no idea that people would find it as frightening as they did. And of course, I found that hilarious. Oh, let, let me tell you, James. <laughs> I was I, I don't know if you've, you've heard me mention host on the on this podcast before, but I was evangelical about it. I was sitting people down mm. who I knew not to be horror fans, saying, "Right, you need right. to understand." This is absolutely grabbing the zeitgeist of what we're all experiencing. I don't care if you don't like horror. You yeah. need to watch this. And everybody was saying, this is an incredible piece of work. So I mm. I know that you'd rather humbly say, you know, I'm only in it for sort of three, four seconds. But let me tell you, huge congratulations on being a part of that project. Oh, well, thank because you. Because I, I adore it. It is no, for my money, if someone were to ask me the questions I'm about to ask you, the best horror film from the last five years, my answer to that would be Host because it was it's a perfect film. So oh, lovely. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm 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 not I'm not going to try and dissuade you from that. Although I have chosen a different film. <laughs> yes, we'll get um, to that. Don't you worry, dude. We will, we will, we will get will. to that pick. So um, it has to be said. I'm going to um, be quite well, not. Yeah, I'm going to be transparent with our audience here, James. Yours is the f hmm. you are the first person to send me your list in advance, and I couldn't be happier that you did because I, knowing you from Evolution of Horror and hearing you speak very eloquently about you know the the films that inflame your passion and that got you into genre cinema, hmm. I knew we we're going to be looking at some quite deep cuts and some you know perhaps looking towards the earlier end of the 20th century for your picks. Um, yeah. So I was so grateful for you sending <laughs> through your list because I'm not joking. At time of recording, I have seen exactly four of your picks. So this, is, <laughs> right. 
this is going to be an education yes. for me as much as everybody else, which is a very welcome byproduct of me creating this podcast. So I think marvelous. I mean, I end. mean, in my in my defence, I have tried to choose films which span a great swathe of time. So, so I think the list on the whole is rather eclectic. You know, I I haven't yeah. just chosen thirteen obscure German expressionist films from the nineteen twenties. Which I think is the stereotype everyone associates me with. Um, it's, it's fairly wide ranging on the whole. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the the thought that's gone into it. That it's you know you're spanning uh, various movements and, and bits and pieces. It's, I, it has I, been a terrible strain. It's <laughs> really I've exposed myself to sound and color, <laughs> and it's nearly killed me. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Let's let's jump straight in then. Um, All right. James Swanson, what was the very first horror film you ever saw? Now, there's my official response to this, which is the silent version of The Phantom of the Opera. Although in truth, I think it was probably preceded by... certainly one film I've never returned to and is not regarded highly, which is that terrible remake of The Haunting. I, I think I saw nearly all of that when um, I think my sister got it from like the video shop or something. Um, and I was, uh, I'll have been like 10 at the time. But I don't really remember anything about it. And although I think I was sort of hyper aware that oh, it's a horror film, it must be terrifying. Um, I, I, don't, I don't really think I engaged with it terribly deeply. I, I sort of remember the odd image from it. I remember the... Um, dead, evil proprietor of the house stepping out of a painting at the end, and that being quite visually interesting. But um, it's, it's, as I say, not a film I've returned to, and not something that's lodged itself in my imagination. I but think we'll, I, we'll I, stick with the slightly higher-brow Phantom yeah, of the Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, I think... I think <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's certainly been my logic, but, um, I mean, I would say preceding... I've always been fascinated with skulls and skeletons. I can't explain it. But you have an awful lot in that film, in the witch's dungeon, predominantly. And it was the image of the skull that drew me to the Phantom of the Opera. It was that makeup, that image that Lon Chaney created, this death's head mm. on uh, the body of a man in uh, sort of refined, gentlemanly clothing. And I'd seen this image before seeking out the film. I remember my grandma had been to Universal Studios in Florida, and she brought back... Um, uh, a leaflet that had um, breakdowns of all of the attractions there. And one of the things, and they still have it there in a modified form, but one of the things in that leaflet was, um, I think at that time it was called The Gory, Gruesome and Grotesque Horror Makeup Show. Hell of a mouthful. But um, <laughs> to to advertise this, they had um, this this sort of great set of I think, painted graphics of all of these horror film characters. You had the fly from the Cronenberg version. You had uh, Linda Blair in The Exorcist. But towering above all of them was this image of the Phantom of the Opera, the Long Chaney Phantom. And I had no idea what this, you know, monstrous visage was from, what, what film it derived from. So, um, yeah, it was years and years later when I put two and two together saw the DVD of The Phantom of the Opera, I think in Borders, which rather dates this, because Borders is <laughs> no more in the UK um, by now. And, um, you know, I sort of stumped up what pocket money I had for, you know, this film. And I watched it, and um, it 
essentially changed my life. It's 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 an incredible lasting image, isn't it? Is when mm, the yeah. mask is is taken away and Lon Chaney's face is revealed. It's astonishing. It's, it's something actually that occurs to me that we're going to revisit that image a bit later on in your oh, list. Oh yes, I yes, believe, we certainly which is, are. It's quite a nice. Li- as soon as I saw the two titles appear, I was like. I completely mm. understand. I can just sit yeah. there as a straight line you can draw between this and another film we're going to discuss later. Yes. But it's it's coming up to, you know, 100 years old. Oh, and yes. it's still one of the... any you, you watch any sort of horror documentary, like, you know, Shudder did their top 100 scariest moments. I think it featured in that. Any sort of documentary where horror films are discussed in that manner... It's always in the opening montage, and then generally yes. it's discussed yeah. as like one of the earlier points of it. But yeah, yeah. I just I, I can't imagine the power just being in the cinema, just not knowing this was coming, and then as soon as like the mask mm. is taken off, yeah. What, what must that have been like to be seeing that with an audience for the very first time when that is the height of makeup and special effects and that sort oh, of thing. Oh, indeed. And it has to be said that Universal and Lon Chaney were extremely cunning in how they approached the film. It, it was a stipulation that no photographs of the Phantom makeup were released in advance of the film. And if you look at the original posters and publicity materials, you cannot find the Phantom's face to save your life. There are two quite different cuts of the Phantom of the Opera. Um... There was one made in 1925, which is rather harder to see now. You can get hold of it. It's floating around on the internet. It has been issued on DVD and so on. But um, the cut of the unmasking scene we generally see is one from a 1929 reissue, which is assembled from different takes. And this this came as a great revelation to me, because if, if, if you are able to... Um, seek out the original 1925 unmasking, it's even more frightening than the 1929 one, which is more familiar. It doesn't differ in any big ways, but the takes they use of Lon Chaney just have a slight edge. Mm. So he gets unmasked in the familiar cut and he screams, which is wonderful in the silent film. And and in fact, in that story in general, it's a, you know, the Phantom of the Opera is a story about the, um, the human voice. Um, and its power, and its beauty, and I suppose in that scene, its terror. And, um, you know, we, we have to imaginatively accommodate it, because, you know, we can't hear anything. Um, so so Lon Chaney screams in the 1929 version. In the 1925 one, the mask is removed, and he looks startled for a moment, and then just clamps his teeth into that rictus grimace, looking truly skull-like. Um, it, it really did shock me, having 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 seen the 1929 version for years and years, and knowing it back to front, seeing the 1925 version. So, um, yeah, it's it's How worth digging. That and, must have been though. Oh yeah, it's it's so worth digging and seeing. With the text, yeah, 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 it's worth digging and seeing what audiences were actually terrified by, because I think it does have that extra kind of visceral punch. Mm. Yeah. Excellent stuff. All right then. So, Phantom of the Opera uh, mm. is the first disc going on your shelf, James. A so... film that warped me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it introduced me to the idea of horror acting, really. And that um, a monster could be visually captivating and frightening and very, very moving. And, and you get all of that compressed into that unmasking scene. Masterfully done. Masterfully mm. done. So it's uh, very well put, James. I, I, I 
Five stars, no notes to that answer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the second disc I'm going to ask you for then, James, is which film scared you the most? Um, I'm trying to think if I had any other answers for this, but... Um, I do like that you've got honourable mentions, James. I, I'm, I appreciate I'm, how seriously you've taken this. <laughs> well, as... as <laughs> well, one must. Um, mm. It's horror cinema. It's very important. Yeah, um, I... You know, as, 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 as I've already said, I've never really gone to horror films to be frightened particularly. Um... So I think the only one that really got under my skin earlier on than this, and I'll have been like 12 or 13 at the time, and and not really into modern horror, as um, I mean, (laughs) I've seen a bit more modern horror now, but um, it's it's still not my primary thing. But I, I remember seeing the American version of The Ring when I was very young. Well, not very young, but sort of early teenage. And that really did get under my skin and cost me some sleep. But the the film, I would say, that has scared me more profoundly than any other, and therefore my actual choice, uh-huh. is Fred's. This is the, the nuclear... What's the... Yeah. What is, I, Oh boy! Oh boy! Is it nuclear? Um. (laughs) (laughs) So this is it, isn't it? It's it's there is a nuclear weapon that is launched against Britain. It it depicts what could happen. Is that? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a 1984 film made by the BBC, which which is doing exactly that. It's um a kind of what if drama as to um exactly how events would play out if a nuclear bomb was dropped outside of Sheffield. Now, Is there a particular reason why they picked Sheffield, do you think? Or, or was it just uh, well, I mean, budgetary I mean, reasons? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think primarily it was to make it uh, more relatable. And certainly for me as a Yorkshireman, mm. it uh, gives the film a verisimilitude which is profoundly unsettling. And with it being Sheffield as well, it, it has a grittiness that I don't think it would have if it was set in London or, or New York, as these things are often set. You know, they they tend to home in on a flagship city, these apocalypse scenario dramas. Um, so to have something set in Sheffield, a location I recognise and, um, you know, even now feel a degree of connection to being up here in York, is um, it, it does give it an edge which um, is very, very potent. I, I caught up with this film as as a result of, um, I think, the evolution of horror a lot, banging on about it constantly. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I caught up with it during the first lockdown. Uh, oh, wow. Where the theme of yeah, apocalypse well, was much I on was my mind. Say, yeah. You're not quite desperate enough, James. You just think, well, I know it would cheer me right up. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I not only did that, but I had, um, you know, my... Wonderful friend Dan Martin, the uh, makeup effects maestro, he, he he furnished me with a list of films about um, apocalypse situations, some of which are utterly fantastic. Uh, Failsafe, in particular, um, a film that came out around the same time as Doctor Strangelove. It's an extraordinarily good film that was rather in the Kubrick film's shadow, and, um, God, seek it out. It's grippingly intense and remarkably beautifully done um yeah so fred's was one that mike and the gang were yeah yeah i'll I'll do do watch failsafe it's not a horror film but it's 
horrific and very, very gripping. Yeah, so so Fred's was one that Mike and the gang were going on about a lot, and um, I had heard of it before, but, you know, given we were living in an apocalypse of our own, I, I, I thought it seemed a thing to do. I'd, I'd, I'd just reread Daniel Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year, which is a kind of apocalypse book. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll watch an apocalypse film. And it's one of those experiences that I've so rarely had where you watch something and you go in thinking, I know what this is about. I know roughly where it's going. It's not going to be that bad. It's not going to be that bad. Get through about... I I have this as well with Requiem for a Dream, um, which I think I watched the year after for the first time. (laughs) And, um, yeah, first half hour you think, oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's not that bad. The bomb falls, you think, oh, okay. Things are... Things are getting grim now, but, you know, I, I, I can deal with this. This is fine. Um, by the end, Christ. I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't realise quite how much it had affected me until I peeled off upstairs to bed, lay there with the lights off, stared at the ceiling and went, Oh, I'm not all right. That was a lot. It's so, so powerfully done. And I don't really want to spoil too much, um, because it's worth having that surprise. Um, I mean, I mean, have you have you watched any of it, Joe? Did you um, I, scope out any clips or anything? It's again. So this is it. It's again. It's one of mm. those that I've just seen clips of. So I'm aware yeah, of a yeah. couple of bits that are just. Yeah. There, there's one p- particular part that I, I'm. <laughs> I hope I know what you're going to say because I have a point about it. If so, <laughs> well, it, it may be I don't yeah, know, but yeah, there's, yeah. I think there's a a quite a substantial character death that just happens basically off screen. Oh and right, you're brought yes. back to it. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, I I have to say I have not sorted out since I watched it in 2020, so my memory is a bit fuzzy. But that strikes me as typical of the Fred's playbook. Yeah, I mean, they they are completely pitiless with an ensemble of characters who, because you're in Sheffield, because they're played by virtually unknown actors, are very relatable and very recognisable. And then, God, once once the bomb has fallen, you have, you know, there, there, there is no narrative handhold. You know, you have no idea how... how how everything's going to settle, um, like the horrible ashy nuclear dust, and oh god, it, 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 yeah. I mean the 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 um the, the sort of moment where I think even on first watching, where I thought this is a work of genius, and it is a moment that gets discussed a lot. Was just after the bomb has fallen. There's a moment that lasts only a few seconds, where a woman is looking on. The mushroom cloud, with a look of absolute horror on her face. And then you cut to a shot of her trouser leg, and you can just see some urine dribbling down onto the pavement. Oh my god. Now it's a highly <laughs> it's a highly memed moment. And it was a moment that the internet had a lot of devilry with a good few years ago now, where it's 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 a woman who I don't think really even had a big career as an actor. I think I think she may have been a drama teacher or something. Her name was Anne Sellers. Um, and she was probably resident in Sheffield. I, I have to add by way of a sidebar that I still run into actors in York who 
were either in or knew people who were in threads. And, you know, they still talk about how the burn wounds for after the blast were created with Rice Krispies. Um, <laughs> you would, you'd, you'd never know it watching it, but... Um, yeah, you know, as a result of this kind of casting situation, you wind up with Ann Sellers playing this woman. And the internet, being full of devilry, managed to get Ann Sellers trending on IMDb as something absurd. She may have been number one in the world for a few days. She she <laughs> definitely got into the top five or ten. It's ridiculous. Um, so it's it's a highly recognised moment, and one that's been lifted out of its original context a lot. And ordinarily that would diminish such a moment's power. But I tell you, it, it still chills me. It absolutely chills me to the bone. Because I could see when that happened that this film has the courage to really be brave. To to commit to screen unflinchingly an image that could well be interpreted as ridiculous or absurd. But it isn't. It's truthful. It's absolutely imbued with truth. If I saw a mushroom cloud over Sheffield, I would very likely wet myself. <laughs> now, you've just laughed at me saying that, but in context, it would not be funny at all. No, um, it, 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 in, in fact, it would be the most sensible thing to do, I think, in that situation. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> But um, Fred's is packed to the rafters with telling details of that nature which have this ring of absolute authenticity about them and as a result how it escalates it, it does feel like you're seeing some horrible alternate future some future that thank god hasn't happened but um could well have done and, and could yet in some form i don't i don't i oh go on go on no, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it, it could have been, you know, at, at the time given it was, you know, 1984 and, you know, the, the political situation there. Oh, absolutely. yes. Absolutely. Yes. It was preyed on, on, you know, modern concerns and anxieties. And again, with, mm. you know, your friend of mine, Vladimir Putin, threatening similar <laughs> things with this missile he says he's got and everything. Yeah. You know, it's, I wonder if it might start to resurface. So well, everyone's you... Yeah, do you do you remember that absurd moment a few years ago where a lot of the leaders of political parties in the UK were doing television debates and Jeremy Corbyn was asked the question whether he would press the nuclear button. And he said, No, I wouldn't, because if we do that we're finished. Because <laughs> have you seen he, threads? <laughs> well that that's what he should have said. I mean I mean people have and do pillory Jeremy Corbyn for all sorts of things, and we can debate, you know, the degree to which people are correct or incorrect about each of those things. But where where nuclear war is concerned, I, think, I don't I don't think there's a debate to be had. But you know, the nah. right wing the right wing media being what it is, he you know he got absolutely, you know, he got an absolute belting for that, and um, it, it did strike me as particularly insane because uh, a film like Fred's, you know, really does prove war particularly nuclear war, it is not a game. It is not fun. We are fucked if anything of that nature <laughs> happens. Absolutely. Um, Mutually assured destruction, I believe. And I t I, well, I tell you, the, the, the final stage of Fred's, because it, it follows a family's course over generations, which is something I didn't oh, expect really? it to do. So, so by the end of a film, no one who was there at the start is still alive. Um, you're dealing with 
a descendant, and what what happens to that descendant in the last few minutes is one of the most nightmarish things in any film. Um, I'm going to have to watch it. I've got oh, a free yes, weekend yes, yeah. coming up, James, so I think I'm just going <laughs> to, you know, remember yeah, the good gonna... old times of 2020. And... <laughs> yeah, oh, good Lord. Um, make, make sure you're feeling relatively chipper about life before you're brought crashing down to earth. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Okie dokie then. So Threads <laughs> is the film that scares you the most. Let's go then for your third disc I'm going to ask you for. Uh, what's your favourite slasher film, James? Again, I had an alternative answer for this, but one of Excellent. the one of the rules I've set myself is I'm I'm not allowed to pick a film I've discussed at length elsewhere. Ah, because my, my my first thought was to do Theatre of Blood. Of course. Which I think probably is my favourite slasher film. But I did I did a Patreon episode on that for Evolution of Horror, so I can't bloody pick <laughs> it for this. I've decided. So um I've 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 gone for a film which I really enjoy, and which I simply don't think gets discussed often enough, which is House of Mortal Sin. You're absolutely right. I'd actually <laughs> heard of this. And you put here it was released in 1976. So you think around, around that time, mm. it would have been spoken about in the same conversations as, you know, Texas Chainsaw and all that sort of stuff. So t- tell me about House of Mortal Sin, James. What's it all well, about? I- well, I think possibly the reason it wasn't discussed as, you know, the same breadth as Black Christmas or Halloween is because it was made in the UK. Um, it's a film from director Pete Walker, who is still with us and is a cult figure, although one who gave up directing, I think, I think in order to move into real estate or something of that nature and make an awful lot of money, which uh, many film him. directors don't. <laughs> yeah, good for him. <laughs> but he, um, he, he left in an an indelible mark on um, British exploitation cinema and uh, you know he produced loads and loads of horror films so great great titles amongst them like The Flesh and Blood Show and Die Screaming Marianne and The Comeback and House of the Long Shadows which is uh, the only film that unites Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Vincent Price and John Carradine and is nowhere near good enough, considering all of that. But it's wonderful oh, to see them all together. Oh, that's such a shame. That is a shame to hear. That. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but um, the the films that Pete Walker is most highly regarded for are a kind of loose trilogy of home county set suburban horrors, all of which comment on how Britain, even men in the nineteen seventies, was kind of going wrong. So the three films in question are House of Whipcord which is a comment on the justice system and British prisons and how certain sinister elements in society would like to see capital punishment reinstated. Mm-hmm. Frightmare, which is a, you know, for my money, is Britain's answer to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and critiques the idea of care in the community by focusing on a very sweet-seeming old lady played by the terrifying actress Sheila Keith who um, may may have an appetite for things of a cannibalistic persuasion. And uh, then there's this film, the third in uh, this sort of loose trilogy, House of Mortal Sin, which uh, attacks the Catholic Church. <laughs> Maybe this is another reason it hasn't had much attention. It was probably seen <laughs> as rather controversial at the time it came out. So um, the alternate title for this film was The Confessional, and it deals with a priest 
played by Anthony Sharp. Not a very well-known actor, but brilliant in this, one of those British character actors of the old school. And playing a role that was originally offered to Peter Cushing, but which Cushing wasn't able to do for whatever reason. Um, so the film focuses on Miss Priest, who engages in confession with this girl who's just sort of drifted into the church because she's had a row with her boyfriend and she's feeling quite low. And he becomes obsessed with her and determined to sort of purify her by murdering the people surrounding her. Um, As you do. Yes. That's <laughs> what I do on all my Sundays. Um, it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 got this brilliantly kind of scuzzy feel to it, like a lot of Pete Walker films, and certainly the um, the big three that I've um, that I've outlined there. Um, yeah, so so it's a little like Friends in the sense that these are recognisably grimy British locations that I don't think you'd ever see represented in a higher budgeted film that came from a major studio. Um, and that that gives it a great appeal. Um, you know, you're sort of looking at old shops and old signage and old cars, and you know, there's a there's a real atmosphere that you know I I, I kind of remember from my childhood in the early nineties, which is gradually going away more and more now. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's written by David McGillivray, who. Um, teamed with Pete Walker on these three films in particular. And um McGillivray, um I've 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 met him subsequently. He's um he's still knocking around and um I think I think I think it was the writer Jonathan Rigby who pointed out that McGillivray had a quite left wing sensibility in, in terms of his writing of these films. Whereas Pete Walker had a rather right-leaning sensibility. So, so between them, there's this kind of galvanising tension as they um, look at these various institutions. And both of them are attacking these institutions and ripping them to shreds, though coming from slightly different vantage points. And it, it just gives these films a kind of... Um, I don't know, a substance that I don't mean they'd have if um, everyone involved in the process was completely politically aligned and completely certain of the point they were setting out to make. They're very naughty, they're full of black humour, they're very impish, and they're orgies of bad taste. You know, this is a film where the priest strangles someone to death with some rosary beads. This is a film where the priest beats <laughs> the living hell out of someone with, um, you know, his censer full of burning incense in the middle of the church. Uh, they had to find a deconsecrated church because... You know, can you imagine trying to get the local priest to give you filming permission for scenes of this nature? But you know, it's 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 also got a very old-fashioned gothic feel to it. Um, you know, you think of characters like Frollo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and um, the um, you know the, the seminal title character in the old gothic novel by Matthew Lewis, The Monk. You know, these lustful representatives of the Catholic Church who are obsessively attracted to one woman. And, you know, by, by the same token, it's quite forward-looking because in the 50-odd years since this film's release, we've um, become more and more aware of corruptions in the Catholic Church, which people were aware of even then. But, um, yeah, it, it feels timeless and of its time and... and 
yeah, as 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 though it's looking into the future. So so it's um it's it's a film that sort of spans time in that way. It's um it's always something I really enjoy returning to. I was going to say that's it's quite an interesting comment you've just made there, saying that because you, you painted such a you know such a an evocative picture of representing how you know Britain used to be and it looking mm. very much of that time but then equally saying it feels timeless that has intrigued me quite a lot i'm i'm definitely going to be seeking these ones out as well they sound absolutely brilliant oh it's 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 really really good um yeah yeah excellent stuff so that's house of mortal sin is your favorite slasher then james thank you very much that's fantastic let's then move to uh your fourth disc which is your favorite ghost or haunting horror movie <laughs> I've slightly cheated with this one because Good. I can't help but be aware, having listened to all publicly available episodes of your podcast to date, that for this question, everyone picks the innocence, or at least they're very tempted they to pick do. the Thank innocence. Thank you for listening, but yes. And, and, and <laughs> well, it, had I not listened, I would also be picking the innocence. And you know, I, I, I understand you still haven't quite gotten round to it. So, um, you know, I, I didn't want to be giving you this you know, extra dimensional view of the film before you've even seen it. You know, <laughs> it may, it may carry yeah, no surprise yeah. I mean, and no I shock value Kevin at all. Lyons is, uh, <laughs> Kevin Lyons is absolutely going to be very disappointed with my lack of progress on that one. So <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll be coming round to your house and haunting it personally, unless you get round to this film. Uh, do not mess with Kev. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I've slightly cheated with this and I've gone for a ghostly film released in 1945. Though not dead of night, I have gone for the body snatcher. Fantastic stuff! Again, I, I've joked about how this is going to. This is an education for me. This episode, so you know, as with it, being completely transparent, I haven't seen <laughs> the body snatcher. Tell you me, you need all to about see the body, body snatcher. snatcher. <laughs> you know, it, it's one. It's one of the greatest horror films of the nineteen forties. I, 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 I think for my money, the greatest. And I'd put it up there with another 1945 film called Hangover Square, which um, is also focused on some deeply twisted, deeply unhealthy human beings. Well, one in the case of Hangover Square, but two in the case of The Body Snatcher. So the reason I've chosen this as a haunting film is because there is a supernatural element in this film. It, it's based on a Robert Louis Stevenson short story, and it, it to the best of my recollection, it pretty well replicates the ending, although it um, elaborates the ending, and it really goes into no-holds-barred, haunting, ghostly, supernatural territory in the last few minutes. But um, for the most part, it's a tale of a different sort of haunting. It's a tale of two haunted men, two men who are obsessed with each other, willingly and malignantly in one case. Um, against his will in the other case. Um, so the central relationship in this film is of a well-to-do Edinburgh doctor, Dr. McFarlane, played by Henry Daniel, who's one of my favourite old-time Hollywood character actors, a fantastic, fantastic performer who's never had his dues. And the other character is an Edinburgh cab driver, a man of, you know, lower-class stock, who moonlights as a body snatcher, pilfering bodies for 
the Doctor. And he is played by Boris Karloff, an actor who needs no introduction whatsoever, but, you know, an actor for whom my heart beats with a love which is enduring and deep and long-lasting and, for all I know, eternal. Um, <laughs> now, to see these two masterful actors dealing with a wonderful script and locked in this battle of wills and wits is, to me... You know, seventh heaven, you know. To me, horror cinema doesn't get any better than this. And it it just presses all of the buttons I, I, I you know, that I like to have pressed when I watch a horror film. Uh, the acting is astonishingly good. I, I would have been happy to see either Danielle or Karloff walk away with the Best Actor Oscar for 1945. Neither was nominated, of course, because horror films, by and large, weren't seen as worthy of that kind of consideration. But, um... Yeah, there is some unbelievably charismatic character acting going on, and uh, yeah, you 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 could not ask for two better performers to deliver it. And um, you know, as the title suggests, the body snatcher. You know, on the surface, this is a film about um, bodily possession. You know, you 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 take the flesh and bones of the dead. You set them on the anatomist's table, you pick them to pieces, you try and weed out God's secrets. You know, it, it is a film about bodily possession, but when, when you look at the battle of wills between Daniel and Karloff, you start to realise, little by little, it's really a battle of souls. And these are two characters who are damned. Uh, I, be, I believe the Doctor of... Uh, sorry. I believe the, uh, the wife of the Doctor character, she... um. Yeah, yeah, she says she has second sight, and um, she says she sees these two men, and the pit yawns for them. She sees their bodies burning. And there's a wonderful speech that Karloff's, Karloff's character, Cabman Grey, makes at one point, where he's saying uh, to the Doctor, you know, you and I have two bodies, very different sorts of bodies, I'll give you, but we're closer than if we were in the same skin. Well, I saved that skin of yours once, and you'll not forget it. Um, so, so the blackmailing stratagem that um, Karloff's character has over Danielle's is that he stood up in the witness box and essentially took the blame for body snatching at an earlier point in uh, the Doctor's career. And as a result, the Doctor cannot get away from this taunting, mocking figure. And, and Karloff... I don't think was ever really... I still don't think he's given the full credit for what a brilliant actor in three dimensions he was. In that, of course, his most famous performance is The Frankenstein Monster, where he doesn't say anything. He makes some very expressive noises, which I wouldn't change for the world. But, um... Oh, and I suppose in the sequel, Bride of Frankenstein, he does speak. But, um... Karloff, when he was just playing a really monstrous human being... Mm. was so, so captivating. And looking at him in the body snatch, you're, you're, you're reminded that he was the visual model for the Grinch, as he appears in the 1960s animated special. And, you know, he did, he did, he did the voice of the Grinch, and he also narrated that. Um, but you look at Karloff's face, and as Capman Grey, he has this omnipresent smile. I, I read one review many years ago, and it, it referred to it as a shit-eating grin, and it's exactly that. He's 
ever smiling and he has a kind of unctuous oily relish in what he does he's like a kind of uriah heap figure and karloff also makes this brilliant decision not to play this lower class character with any significant alteration of his usual voice his usual modulations so you have this character who by all rights should be living out of a hole in the wall and yet he has that very genteel karloffian delivery very soft-spoken and that is genius in this context because it gives cabman gray this shabby genteel off-center presence where you really don't know what this man is capable of you know, if if you got into a cab in Edinburgh in the 1800s and he was driving it, you would feel very, very unsettled <laughs> because this, <laughs> this this seems like a man who is apt to accomplish far greater things than appearances might dictate. And Henry Daniel, oh, I love Henry Daniel so much. He was a brilliant actor in so many things. He's in uh, the Greta Garbo film Camille as... Uh, the sort of wicked count or baron, and he's fantastic in that. He 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 appears in The Great Dictator with Chaplin as a sort of surrogate Joseph Goebbels, and you know he's brilliant again there. And uh, you know he played Doctor Moriarty opposite Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes in The Woman in Green, and one one of those voices which no other actor has ever possessed. And yeah, and an actor who is very, very charismatic whilst transmitting no warmth whatsoever at any point. It's so interesting. And, um, you know, he has, he has a, brilliantly, um, a brilliantly expressive face. He looks sort of like a human halibut. Sort of <laughs> pickled <laughs> fish-like features. But, um, God, I, I, yeah, I mean, I've burbled on and on. I, I, I could watch these two actors haunting each other all day long and... Um, yeah, of course this is a film produced by Val Luton. Now, now I, I have to ask, and I do so with some fear, have you seen a Val Luton film? I think so. Cat so People? He, he did, you did Cat yes, People? Yes, that's the, 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 the Val Luton bus. Yes, yes. The, the, yeah. That's my, my touch point with Val Luton. <laughs> mm. For my money, The Body Snatcher is the greatest of all the Val Luton horror films. I think Cat People is still to this day the kind of critical favourite. I admire Cat mm. People, but I don't love it in the way I love The Body Snatcher. I think I think The Body Snatcher yeah, is the greatest hype that the Luton outfit at RKO Studios ever hit. Um, I think the scariest film they did is The Leopard Man. The most sort of enchanting is The Curse of the Cat People, which is is more of a kind of fairy tale for adults. But the overall greatest film is The Body Snatcher. The the way that you, you've described the 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 two sort of lead performances there, Joe, is that could there mm. ever be and I asked this obviously having not seen it, so perhaps I've picked up on something that yes. isn't necessarily there. <laughs> is there a potential for an argument? to say that this is a love story between the two of them if they're so oh 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 well that that element is definitely there i mean with it being derived from robert louis stevenson you of course think to the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde where Mm. one of the big undercurrents in that work is the idea that um in in until it's revealed right at the end that spoiler warning 
Jekyll and Hyde are the same person. Um, there's this feeling throughout that Mr. Hyde might be a homosexual blackmailer. You know, he, he, he may have been a rent boy mm. or connected to a rent boy and be holding this over Jekyll's head. Uh, homosocial is the word. It's a very homosocial book and world that you find presented in Jekyll and Hyde because there are virtually no women. In fact, the only significant mm. woman is the one who, uh, well, the little girl who Hyde tramples over. Um, and yeah, you, you do get a quality of that in the body snatcher. There's something deeply, deeply unhealthy about the relationship between these two men. And 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 you wonder if Capman Grey is kind of in love with Dr. McFarlane. And with Karloff and Danielle being such astute actors and intelligent human beings I'm, I'm i'm sure they weren't oblivious to this as a subtext in fact um towards the end of the film they 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 do have a very spirited fight on the floor of um cabman gray's uh dismal edinburgh pad and um yeah i mean it's it's very very dark and it's very very physical and um yeah, they're really getting into it. <laughs> it has a different oh, sort of it has a different sort of climax, but um, it's, certainly, it's, it's certainly an argument you can make. Well, I mean, even more so, am I desperate to watch this one now as well? You, you, you're doing an excellent job of selling these films to me. Good, well. good. It's what I it's what I exist for. I have no other purpose. <laughs> oh, bless you! No, come on. There's still uh, there's still people to scare James. You know, he's still got to jump up as a, as a demon well. in other bits. <laughs> I'd rather they watch Val Luton films first. <laughs> the demons could come later. Uh, the fifth disc I'm then going to ask you for, James, is uh, oh, yes. what's your favourite horror TV show? Oh, again, I fought long and hard about this. Um, because I could have chosen any one of the Lawrence Gordon Clark M.R. James films. Apart from The Ash Tree, which I've always thought terribly overrated and find quite difficult to follow. But certainly most of them, The Stalls of Barchester, A Warning to the Curious, The Treasure of Abbot Thomas, Lost Hearts, which has a terrifying children in it, they, they, they rank among the greatest horror ever lensed for television. However, they were all standalones, so I would be in the horrible position of having to pick one. <laughs> So I've gone instead for a later M.R. James TV series, which, going by its slightly unwieldy on-screen title, is called Ghost Stories for Christmas with Christopher Lee. You... I didn't realise that with Christopher Lee is actually included in the title of this show. <laughs> I, think, I think you could quibble. I think you could quibble and say that's a subtitle, but the way it appears on screen, <laughs> I, I think it's very much Ghost Stories for Christmas with Christopher Lee. And uh, you'll, you'll find it listed on the internet as... Christopher Lee's Ghost Stories for Christmas. That's not what it says at the start, so that's obviously not the title. Don't listen to that. Listen to me. I've done my work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Go Ghost Stories for Christmas with Christopher Lee was four. A four-episode a four series that the BBC did around the turn of the century. And its simplicity itself. It's going back to the primal image of M.R. James of A Christmas Eve reading from his newly written ghost story in his rooms at King's College, Cambridge. That's it. So what you get is, mm. it's kind of like an Alan Bennett talking heads monologue, but with 
Christopher Lee, looking, I mean, uh, like a Cambridge Don, but not in any way physically resembling a real M.R. James. He's, he's sat there in his chair, he has his decanters of port or sherry or brandy, I'm not sure which. Uh, Christopher Lee deserves all of them. And, you know, he's, <laughs> he's telling some of the most wonderful ghost stories ever written in his inimitable style. And it's so, so effective. Um, particularly, I think, the one that you've watched, which is The Stalls of Barchester. I, I did. I, I watched this mm. earlier today, just to, in, in preparation. You very helpfully sent a couple of links across just to yes, uh, yeah. give me a nudge in the right direction. You're absolutely right. It's it, it's amazing. It's it's so effective in its simplicity, as yeah. you were saying. It's where it is literally. Oh, we're just going to tell you a ghost story, and there, yeah, there's the yeah. odd sort of like you know reconstruction shot. If you yes, like, yeah. sort of. I mean, it's very rudimentary, like. isn't it? It's it's. It, I mean, it's it's almost at times like a kind of crime watch reconstruction, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's 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 all you need. It's just a little embellishment. It's just a little uh, guilt on the gingerbread, and um, you know, the gingerbread, of course, is Christopher Lee. And um, <laughs> this this, I have to say, was a particularly fertile point for Christopher Lee's acting. Because he had been contemplating retiring from acting in, I believe, the 90s. Giving it up completely. He'd had a health scare with um, needing to have um, a very dangerous heart operation. And, um, you know, he had come back from that, but um, the British film industry being what it was at that stage and the sort of films that were then being made, you know, there, there wasn't really a place for an actor of the outsized presence of Christopher Lee and then by by Christopher Lee's own reckoning the turning point came when Tim Burton got in touch and put him in Sleepy Hollow now he's only in that film for a few minutes near the start mm. but but Christopher Lee credits that appearance with um you know waking casting directors up to the fact that oh he's not dead we should we should <laughs> use him um and it and it led to um what the great writer Jonathan Rigby has termed an Indian summer in Christopher Lee's career. Um, and, and for my money, you get within the space of a few years, I think what for me are three of Christopher Lee's all-time greatest performances. So you have around this time Saruman, of course, in The Lord of the Rings. And that for me is one of the most perfect bits of casting in film history. In the same way Christopher Lee as Dracula was, you are never, ever, no matter how much time goes by, no matter how many actors you see, you are never going to be able to cast a greater Saruman than Christopher Lee. It's perfect. He appears as Saruman, you believe it. That isn't Christopher Lee as Saruman, that is just Saruman. The evil wizard incarnate. Um, it's a performance of such magnetism and such authority, and you believe it. You really do believe it. Ian McKellen wrote in a production diary that he kept online at the time that Christopher Lee had you know the gravity befitting King Lear and it's absolutely true of that performance. Now there's also a lesser known performance from around the same time from Christopher Lee which I love which is um, in another fantasy and it's the BBC's lavish production of Gormenghast. 
in which I didn't know they'd actually done one. To be fair, I yeah. didn't know anyone had done the Gormenghast. No, no. Well, it's far from perfect, but um, one one element in it which I love is Christopher Lee as Flay the Butler, and it's a slightly uncharacteristic Lee performance in that mm. Christopher Lee was capable of being a tremendous character actor, but he was so rarely called on to play characters who didn't look and sound basically like Christopher Lee. Um, but he he's sort of adopting this. I don't even know how to describe the voice, but this kind of stentorian... Um, I don't know, sort of sort of vaguely lower-class intonation to play Flay and this very abrupt delivery. And, um, you know, he, he's... he's You know, his, his appearance is wonderful in this long, straggly wig, and he's um, shaven, which... You know, Christopher Lee without a beard was um, a more uncommon sight by this point. And, um, <laughs> you know, he, he looks amazing and um, he, he, he's got this formidable aura. But, as, you know, as Flay's journey carries on through Gormenghast, as he's banished from the castle, this uh, this great servant, um, Chris, Christopher Lee really rings your heartstrings. <laughs> you know, you, you, it's... Um, it's yeah, amazing to have all of that compressed into one performance. And I think very underrated amongst Christopher Lee's um, acting. Um, but yes, I, I, I would say the third great performance from this period, certainly not Count Dooku, which is a very boring character in a very boring set of films. Oh, um, I was so <laughs> hoping you were going to mention Count Dooku. That was going to be the big third, oh, does it? Wow, here we go. No, <laughs> no, it's this. It's this. It's Mr. It's James or Christopher Lee filling in for M.R. James in, in this BBC series. Um, I, th- I think you have so few documents of Christopher Lee's ability as a storyteller on film. He, he certainly did his fair share of audiobooks, but um, it's it's wonderful to have his physical presence as well, and um, you know he fits this M.R. James material like a glove. He, he revered James and mm. actually claimed to have met him when he sat... Um, an interview or an entrance exam for Eton. Uh, he didn't end up going to Eton because his aristocratic family suddenly went very, very bankrupt. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, Christopher Lee at least claimed to have been in the same room as M.R. James. I'm not 100% on that, but I am 100% on him being brilliant in this series. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've done lots of one-person shows over the years, so... Um, you know, I, I I gravitate towards this series for that as well. It's um, sometimes all you need: a brilliant actor uh, yeah. telling a story, a hundred and a great and story at that. So, mentioning that you know, it's it's effectively it is a one actor performance in here. What, something that did strike me as slightly odd is that he's <laughs> telling this ghost story to a room full of students who they non-verbally react. But that's it. There's none of them. Yeah. None of them are saying anything. No one's going. Oh, that's weird. Oh, that's creepy. Mm. Nothing like that. It's just completely. It's like they have a hundred percent just been told. Right, sit there, <laughs> react to what he said. Don't say anything. Don't make any noise. You know. <laughs> it's Christopher fucking Lee. You wouldn't yeah. dare, would you? <laughs> um, no, I, I, I did. I, I, I rewatched um, the Ash Tree on YouTube. Because um, weirdly, because of a music rights issue, that's the only episode that hasn't been released on DVD. The BFI put out a big box set of lots of BBC MR James material 
Um, I think they've reissued it, so I'm not I'm not sure if that you know if the Ashtray is finally going to be included. But yeah, I, I rewatched this one, which isn't available on home video, so I did not feel bad breaking copyright law to watch it on YouTube, and. Um, I, I did find call myself. Somebody <laughs> call the police. <laughs> I did. I did find myself thinking about the filming process because it's Christopher Lee over the course of four episodes is he's coming out with great, great blocks of text, and it's edited in such a way where I, I, I wonder how much of it he'd actually memorized, how much of it he sort of learned in smaller sections. How much of it may have been on carefully positioned cue cards? I mean, you can't tell. You can't tell if that's the case. But I, I did no. get to thinking, what must it have been like to have been playing one of these students? Sat at Christopher Lee's feet day after day after day while he was just unburdening himself of all of his text. I mean, I mean, I bet, I bet there were some hilarious moments. But um, I, think, I think, yeah, you would have been in an atmosphere of um, sort of Bewitched dread and suspense. You know, it's Camp mm. Dracula telling you the ghost stories of M.R. <laughs> James. Absolutely unbelievable. You wouldn't mind that gig, would you? You'd think, no, yeah, that's a, no. that's a decent day at work. That's all right. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. I, I hope they appreciated what they were in for. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always, um, I always lamented the fact that there hasn't yet been and you know perhaps there will be at some point but i do mm. really feel like with christopher lee and peter cushing and vincent price i do oh, think is. there's a film to be made about the three of them i'd really really like oh, to see just a story I, told around them. i i not a biopic it couldn't be a biopic because the thing with christopher lee is he actually led a very boring life what for all his stories of hunting nazis and well, I mean, I mean, with the SAS uh, and all that. unfortunately, I'm going to have to be a bit of a curmudgeon here, Joe, and say we we have no evidence he stabbed a Nazi. We have no evidence he was hunting Nazis. Christopher Lee always refused to speak about this his war it. record because it was covered by the Secrets Act and all of that, and maybe you know being self-deprecating in that way that people who actually served in the war on those who kind of wank off about the idea of killing a Nazi. <laughs> um, you know, he, he, he never went on record saying anything. <laughs> he, 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 he did sort of hint in a very teasing way. But um, Christopher Lee was a great teller of tall tales, so it may not be the case that the impressions he wanted to give people were entirely accurate. And there's that awful fucking meme that's been turning up for years and years, which is listing a lot of things about Christopher Lee, some of which aren't even true. Um, and then at the end it says something mm. like... Let's see Chuck Norris beat that. Um, <laughs> uh, it's sort of saying he was the real-life inspiration for James Bond, which is bollocks. I mean, he, you know, Ian Fleming was a cousin, but I think that's as far as it went. You know, thing after thing, which is just inaccurate. And um, again, I've, I've name-dropped Jonathan Rigby before. I'll do so again. But Jonathan Rigby has pointed out that the terrible thing with that meme is... Um, it's sort of saying it wasn't enough for Christopher Lee to be an actor. He had to be interesting in all these ways and nothing to do with his acting. Like the heavy metal albums he was sort of roped into recording towards the end of his life. Um, but, you know, when when you're an actor like Christopher Lee, you, you really don't need to be anything else to be interesting. You know, I mean, he, he's one of the most <laughs> interesting actors in terms of a work who ever lived. Which brings me back to the point about his actual life. 
was very, very dull because his life was his work. So if you were to make a film of his life, it would just be him going on to various film sets. And I mean, I mean, what's what's really the point of that when you can watch the films? Um, yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I, th- I, I just think, wanted. I th- just oh wanted no, no. I think. I think. And... No, I think probably the way to go would be a semi-fictionalized film. A bit like Maybe our... that's it. Maybe it's yeah, just him lying. Yeah. He's just just like, oh, did I ever tell, tell you the time about? How I was the inspiration for James Bond, and then Vincent Price pictures. Oh yeah, <laughs> fucking on about this, and go on then. <laughs> oh, there, there, there was a wonderful internet cartoon which um, has vanished into oblivion. I, I, I'm always hoping it will resurface. But it was called The Adventures of Chris and Pete, and the premise was that Peter Cushing was ill in bed, and Christopher Lee had taken it upon himself to come round to Peter Cushing's house and tell him long, rambling, pointless stories. <laughs> Um, oh, God, in order to in order to tempt this. him towards recovery, yeah, I I always hope I'll rediscover it one day. But you know, you you saw Peter Cushing in bed at the end of his tether, just trying to end his life because uh, Chris Christopher Lee's stories went on and on and on and on. <laughs> you know, again, full of tall tales, or claiming to have invented Mickey Mouse and introducing the idea to Walt Disney. Uh, wonderful, but um, yeah, the um, I I I think yeah, a semi-fictionalized film. A bit like Gods and Monsters was made about James Whale, or Edward was made about Edward mm. and, by extension, Bela Lugosi. Because there is a wonderful book written about Peter Cushing uh, called Whitstable by Stephen Volk, who um, is the great writer of Ghostwatch. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's such a brilliant book because um, it, 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 you know, the basic plot is that Peter Cushing is... Living, living in Whitstable after the death of his wife, and he's in this complete stew of mourning and grief. And um, you know, he 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 gets to know a child in a very innocent way, and um, you know, you discover as the story goes on that this child, who who keeps saying, "I I I know a vampire. You have to come and help me destroy them because you're Van Helsing." You know, you discover that this child knows, you know, this this real life monster, um, and it's how Peter Cushing figures in all of that that really gives you an insight into the man, which feels more true than that which you get in an actual biopic or or, or a biographical document of some kind. I, th- I think that's a very interesting thing where you can tell a tale about someone which hits a more profound truth, a deeper truth, than actually looking at the surface facts. Anyway, Whitstable, mm. that, that novel is brilliant for that. I've, I've, again, made another note, yet another thing I need to go away and... Uh, <laughs> oh, it, oh it's well worth reading. Well worth reading. <laughs> um, okay, let's go for your sixth disc then, James. Uh, which film contains your favourite jump scare? As with all of my answers, I fought long and hard about this. And I came to the conclusion that I, I, I've never liked jump scares. I've always sought to distance myself from being a victim of jump scares. Um, I, I, I remember I, I, lo- I loved sort of ghost trains when I was a really young child. And then I, I got a few years older and I suddenly thought, you know, a kind of revelation hit me that, oh, 
that I might jump. So so I, I, I would end up going on wonderful things like the Blackpool Pleasure Beach Ghost Train with um, my eyes shut and my fingers in my ears, only just sort of peeping <laughs> occasionally. Because, because I, I, I really have this complex about being made to jump. I, I really didn't like the idea. So how I can't how, believe the person how ironic. responsible for my favourite jump scare <laughs> as an aversion to jump scares. I, I'm I'm not a fan. I, I mean I'm I'm more cynical now. I can generally tell when they're coming up, but um, um, and I'm a bit more hardened. So so this particular scene I've homed in on is the revelation of a terrifying face, and it's in Mystery of the Wax Museum from 1933. Now, as I think you mentioned earlier, it's a kind of variation on the unmasking in the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> I, th- I think that's what you were guessing at. That is entirely what I was aiming mm. for. Absolutely. Yeah. So the um, the premise of Mystery of the Wax Museum is um, the same as in the Vincent Price remake, House of Wax, which is that a brilliant wax sculptor has been injured in a fire. And he's horribly burned. And he comes back by constructing himself a wax face. And because his hands have been so badly damaged in the fire, he can't any longer create art. He can't create the beauty he once did. So he settles for the next best thing, which is killing off people who look like the various wax figures he wants to create, covering them in wax, displaying their corpses in his museum. Uh, <laughs> as a character at one point exclaims in Mystery of the Wax Museum, the whole place is a morgue, a morgue, and it is. Um, and you have you have that disclosure that the entire place is a morgue um, just just before you get the unmasking of the um, mm. the proprietor in this film. Um, but it's a wonderful jump scare in that he's it's it's been preceded by another scare, which is you suddenly realise that this sculptor isn't wheelchair bound he's he's only been seen in a wheelchair up to this point and he's risen from the wheelchair and he's walking towards the Feyre character entreating her to complete his wax museum um so he's walking towards her you know saying i'm going to give you immortality and she's um as you'd expect backing away and saying absolutely bloody not um <laughs> and then as he grabs hold of her she um hits him on the face, and the face comes away. Now, the entire face doesn't come away at once. And this was apparently because Faye Ray was completely unprepared for what she was about to see. Um, So she gave interviews later in life saying, "Um, I started hitting the mask, having been told that's what I had to do. I saw what, I started to see what was under it, and I just froze. I was paralysed with fear. I remember the director, Michael Curtiz, famously dictatorial, came over and sort of told her off for not having done it. So they did a second take and they got what they needed. But um, assuming what we're seeing in the film is the product of Feyre freezing, I think that's what makes this scare. Because 100%, yeah. she pummels at that face. Some of it falls away. And it just sinks in in a very cold, cold fashion. And then when she pulls the rest of it off, you you have revealed what I think was surely the most gruesome makeup scene in any film up to that point. And and it's worth mentioning as well that the film is in very early Technicolor. It's in two strip Technicolor. It, it gives that makeup an even more unearthly quality because it yeah. really does have a sort of grubby feel to it. It it in a way resembles 
a makeup I briefly mentioned earlier, which is the one applied to Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. Mm. And, um, God, it, it must have really shaken people at the time. Because <laughs> some some other things about this jump scare which are amazing is there's no music. There's no musical score in this film anyway. But it's a shock and a surprise for unexpected reasons. You know, the shock comes from thinking, oh God, they're the same person. As much as seeing this horrifying face unexpectedly and suddenly. I think it's brilliant. It, uh, it absolutely is. And, you know, it's... If if not an actual... I mean, at the time, I imagine it would have, you know, caused people to, mm. you know, start. If if it's not necessarily going to do that with the modern audience, what it is going to do is just completely highlight a moment of utter revulsion. Which oh, I think yes, is probably yes. what it's aiming for. So yes, it, it's yes. a fantastic sequence. I really, mm. really appreciated it, yes, actually. Yes. So I thought it was fantastic. Yes. It's a great I mean, choice, I mean, that one, James. I mean, I mean, slightly dampened by me sending you a clip saying, this is the jump scare I've chosen. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I was, um, I was again. I was so yeah. appreciative of it because no, it was, this is basically yeah. me being taught all the things I've missed from horror. Cinema. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it was actually, it was actually spoiled for me before I saw the film because um, that that clip is included in um, the still very good documentary Universal Horror, which um, turns up on a lot of the box sets of the Universal Monster films. So I had seen it out of context first, and. Um, mm. Yeah, what 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 I would have given to have seen it unawares that that would have been very special. Absolutely, particularly at the time. Yeah, oh, again, yeah. to go back and just see it, you know, unfolding in front of people seeing it for the very first time with the context that this is the most up to date, you know, yes, yeah. filmmaking techniques of the day. That would have been fantastic. Mm. Well, there you go, James Swanton, part one on the Spooky Shelf podcast. We've got more of that conversation coming next week. Remember to subscribe to the Spooky Shelf podcast wherever you get your pods. You can find me at Spooky Shelf Podcast on Instagram. And thanks very much to Cosmic Itchin for creating the incredible photography and artwork for this podcast. And once again, hello to Raoul Coley and Mike Lanigan, who one day will be recording Spooky Shelves of their very own. I'll be back next week with part two of the conversation with James Swanton. Have a lovely week and see you next time.